Welcome to another episode of the PVOX podcast. My name is Allegra and I'm from PVOX Queensland. Today we are recording this episode in Brisbane and before we start we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today to record this podcast and pay our respects to Elders past and present. Today's topic is an important issue that is often not touched on in medical school and as a junior doctor, but as we will hear today, is a prevalent issue in Australia. Today we are going to be talking about a form of intimate partner violence known as reproductive coercion. Recently, Mari Stotes produced a draft white paper on this issue. To quote from their paper, the World Health Organization estimates that between 23 and 49% of females age 15 years and over, experience intimate partner violence. In Australia, more than 17% of women have experienced violence from a partner since the age of 15 years, and these women were eight times more likely to experience sexual violence than men. The white paper also cites that when compared to women who do not experience violence, women experiencing intimate partner violence are twice as likely to have a male partner refuse contraception, twice as likely to experience an unplanned pregnancy, three times as likely to give birth as an adolescent, and they are significantly more likely to experience five or more births than those with non-violent partners. Today we are fortunate enough to hear from someone who works with women and pregnant people in this position to shed light on the issue and how we as doctors can better recognise and understand patients in this situation. I'd like to welcome Liz from Children by Choice, to talk to us about reproductive coercion. Welcome, Liz. Thanks, Andrea. Before we get into the specifics of reproductive coercion, can you tell us a bit about Children by Choice? Yeah, Children by Choice as a statewide Queensland organisation has been around since the 1970s uh, with a commitment to the decriminalisation of abortion here in Queensland, uh, which we achieved um, as of 3rd of December last year. Um, and, and ongoingly now, we want to see a Queensland in which all women can freely make their own reproductive and sexual health choices. So in our work as a leading voice for women's reproductive choices in Queensland, we're committed to providing unbiased information on all unplanned pregnancy options, abortion, adoption and parenting. We do this from a pro-choice and women and pregnant person-centred approach. We provide non-judgmental, all-options counselling information and referrals to Queensland women and uh, other pregnant people with uteruses experiencing unplanned pregnancy and we provide post-abortion counselling through our Queensland-wide phone line and in person at our business office. We also provide sexuality education to young people and professional development um, training for health and community sectors. Um, professionals such as this podcast today, and we work to advance Queenslanders' reproductive choices and to improve access to safe, legal, quality abortion care. Thanks for giving us that uh, summary of Children by Choice. Certainly, um, there's a lot of great information on their website, um, and also uh, just speaking to people from Children by Choice. Um, so, for junior doctors, if you did want to learn more, just going to the Children by Choice website is a great place to start. So Liz, we have chosen to use the term women and pregnant people. Can you explain why it's important to use that term? 
Yeah, I think in this day and age when we're becoming uh, much more aware um, that people don't identify just as men and women in our society, that we're wanting to try and move to language that includes all people who may be facing unplanned pregnancy, the vast majority of whom are going to identify as women. But there will be some folk um, for whom um, an unplanned pregnancy is part of their experience, where they don't clearly or necessarily um, identify as women, but, but, but as, uh, as, as gendered in another way. And so we want to use language that... Um, um, includes all of those folks in the work that we do. Yeah, I think it, um, when you pointed it out, it was it was something that as a doctor we think of women's health and using that term, but mm. I think it's really important to remember to use inclusive language. So thanks for highlighting that for us. Um, now for our listeners, can you tell us what reproductive coercion is? You sure can. You know. Well, to start with, yeah, reproductive coercion is one of the key drivers that um, helps us to understand why we see an overrepresentation of women experiencing domestic violence facing unplanned pregnancy. We define reproductive coercion as any perpetrator behaviour aimed at establishing and maintaining power and control over another person by interfering with their reproductive autonomy. And this can occur regardless of whether the person is in a relationship with, uh, with the perpetrator. So it's very similar to other forms of violence in that the intention is about power and control, but it's yet one more strategy um, that perpetrators might use. And many of the strategies that we'll talk about today quite clearly align with the definitions of domestic violence within Queensland domestic violence legislation. Um, so when we're thinking about reproductive coercion, we're thinking about a range of perpetrators' um, behaviour, which includes pressure to become pregnant, uh, contraceptive sabotage and, and pregnancy outcome pressure. Wow, that's very interesting. Um, and so can you give us examples of what this looks like from an everyday perspective? We sure can. And, and we, we learn about this stuff from the, um, the, the, the stories that we will give, the accounts that we will give of, the, of, their, um, of their everyday lives. You know, it, uh, it, it's it's the, uh, the, the struggles and the hardships of these women that have really taught us the most about the nature of, of, of these um, experiences. So when we're thinking about these strategies, they can be quite subtle and they can also be quite overt. And if we're thinking about something like pregnancy pressure, for example, it may include you know, things like promises or allegations or threats of consequence if a woman does not agree to try to become pregnant. You know, like uh, the, the perpetrator might say something like, if you really love me, you'd have a kid with me. Or, I remember one woman um, telling me that um, her, her partner basically said that the only reason she wouldn't agree to become pregnant with him was that she was so busy running around town having sex with everybody else and she knew, didn't she, that if she became pregnant, guys wouldn't want to have sex with her and that's why she wouldn't agree to become pregnant. And she actually said she kind of relented and became pregnant with him in order to stop the um, baseless allegations of infidelity but of course he moved on to a new tactic and uh, once the pregnancy was in play. So that's a real life example of one woman's um, experience of pregnancy pressure and, and the way that she's tried to, to, to manage that. Uh, so they're, they're all aimed at persuading the woman to agree to become pregnant, even if she does not want to or doesn't feel right about it. Wow, that, that's a very powerful example, I think. And, and would you say that you see these things often in your day-to-day -day work? Absolutely. From um, the data analysis that we've done of service provision data, we think about one third of all women who experience domestic violence that contact our service will report some form of reproductive coercion, whether that's pregnancy pressure or contraceptive sabotage or pregnancy outcome control. 
would it be helpful for me to talk about contraceptive sabotage in pregnancy? Yeah, that well would be well? great. Thank yeah. you. Sure, and these are the things that um, the contraceptive sabotage certainly is something that we, we see quite regularly. So women facing a, a pregnancy that they've not wanted as a result of contraception um, uh, uh, being sabotaged. And that can be a really wide, uh, a wide a range of behaviours from things like promising to withdraw and then failing to do so at the time, uh, preventing access to emergency contraception afterwards. I remember a story from a woman who said that, you know, uh, the, the, the man had failed to withdraw and then, you know, hidden her car keys and uh, her, bank, her bank cards and she couldn't go to the chemist and get emergency contraception uh, within time. Uh, it can be um, things like flushing um, pills down the toilet or tearing up scripts for, for forms of contraception. And unfortunately, we also do hear uh, uh, stories of um, of the forcible removal of, of implant and IUDs and, and of course forced sex, rape, um, it, it is also part of the picture of reproductive coercion. Um, so yeah, we, we hear a lot of stories um, from women about contraceptive um, sabotage, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and we also, of course, being in the um, abortion access space, hear a lot of stories about um, pregnancy outcome control. So not only from women who um, experience a forced abortion, but more commonly um, from women who have been prevented from accessing an abortion that they really wanted. And that might be, um, you know, uh, uh, threats of consequence if they, end the if they end the pregnancy, controlling the woman's finances, emotional manipulation. Women will tell us stories about being sent multiple text messages on the morning of their um, abortion procedure from the perpetrator saying I'll kill myself if you do, if you kill my baby for example so um, but that, that kind of control can take all kinds of forms um, uh, um, uh, across um, pregnancy um, pressure contraceptive sabotage and pregnancy outcome control Thank you for sharing all of that. It certainly is an area that, that we don't often cover and, and think about because for us, often um, our role tends to end at the prescribing of contraception, but mm. it's very interesting to hear that even after that, women can go through forms of intimate partner violence based around that. And So thank you for explaining that clearly. Um, so I guess knowing that, um, what are the ways that we can support pregnant people in these situations? Sure, there are, there are lots of really simple, practical things that you can do um, in terms of how you establish your clinic environment, and there are also uh, lots of things that you can do uh, in the contraceptive counselling and contraceptive provision uh, context. So some examples of that would be, you know, just, I, I often say this to doctors, you, you guys have got a lot of power, you know, so, so, so use it to good effect and take charge of your clinic environment. It can be simple things like insisting on seeing the woman alone for at least part of each consultation that you have with her in a pregnancy um, care setting, whether that's the woman continuing the pregnancy or whether that's an abortion care um, uh, uh, setting. Um, and, and to support that practice, um, we certainly encourage the private abortion clinics to place signs around the clinic saying, you know, that they will. It's, it's clinic policy that they'll see them on their own for part of each consultation, so that anybody accompanying the woman accepts that that's part of routine clinical practice. They're not being singled out for some reason. 
You can also, um, you know, display both in the public spaces and the private spaces of the clinic uh, setting posters that indicate that you're aware of the issues of domestic violence and reproductive coercion. And people can go to the to the um, uh, to the website that to our website and download a suite of, of posters that we've developed in relation to reproductive coercion, um, and just specifically for that purpose. And the other um, uh, um, DV services uh, generally also have posters, um, more generic posters along domestic violence more generally. So even just putting those things up lets people know when they're visiting that space that they're in a space where people are aware of these issues and must care enough about them um, to be to be showing these things in a public space. Um, so it's all clues for the woman that um, uh, her issues may be understood. Okay. Um, so that's, um, and, and also thinking about um, information in the private spaces. So if there are specific spaces within the clinic setting where only women are going to be, say, in the change rooms, for example, or if they're slipping off for a urine sample or something like that, um, again, we can place posters there. And um, one of the key resources we've developed um, in relation to reproductive coercion has a, a great um, contraceptive chart that lists all the contraceptive forms, including information about whether somebody knows they're using it or whether they can tamper with it and we suggest that that can be used as a, as a, a poster within a woman's own space where she might have the time to actually look over that information um, on her own. So that's, that's about the clinic environment. Mm -hmm. Um, I think also as medical professionals, there are very direct ways in which you can respond to their needs for greater control over their reproductive autonomy. In contraceptive counselling, um, sensitive to issues of violence is one example. Providing women with information and access about contraception options that are less tamperable and less detectable can certainly give them more control over if and when she becomes um, pregnant again, as I mentioned. Um, um, we have some really great resources yeah. uh, on our website about that. And um, Allegra, people often ask ask me, what's the best contraceptive uh, for women experiencing reproductive coercion? You know, they want to know the, the one simple, one-size-fits-all solution. So, um, you know, I always say, well, there's lots of options, but it really depends on that woman's unique circumstances. Um, she'll know the nature of, um, of, the, of, the, of the control that she's experiencing. She'll understand uh, what the perpetrator may be capable of. And she'll be trying to marry that up with any knowledge and information you give her about the options that are available. So do you think it would be helpful just to kind of talk through some of those contraceptive options and perhaps point out some of the pros and cons of some of yeah, those? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess just to summarise what you said before, it sounds like that as doctors we often think about what am I going to say to this patient? Yeah. But the things that you've explained to me really are there are things that we can do about the environment yep. before even worrying about the yep. questions we're going to ask in yeah. the history that can actually really help support these patients. Absolutely, absolutely. Can, yeah. And moving to what you're talking about with contraception. So um, there is a fantastic resource, which I'll upload in the podcast notes for this for people to look at, which is basically just um, a table going through the pros and cons that Children by Choice has so well put together. Um, and people, I, I guess the thing that I've heard is that you can think about things like injections mm -hmm. um, when someone 
is unable to have a device because that their body may be searched yeah. um, or a device may be an, a good idea if they don't feel that that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, could you yeah, please talk sure. us through that situation? Yeah, it's interesting you should mention depo because it was one of the contraceptive forms I had to make friends with, again, from a very different kind of place, you know. I, I never really, it's got a history of being associated with enforced um, contraception on, on marginalised women such as those with severe mental health issues and, and, um, and intellectual disability issues. But as you pointed out, it, it is the, one of the forms of contraception that, that um, really can't be tampered with. Once it's in that woman's body, there's nothing much that can be done to, to, to prevent its effectiveness. So, and, and other than the injection site, there's no visible evidence of it, of it being on board. The, 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 um, the postscript to that, though, is again thinking about um, the daily routine of that woman and whether she has um, freedom of movement and whether her, you know, whether her access to medical services and ongoing care is restricted. So what perpetrator practices might get in the way of her being able to go for a follow-up shot in 12 weeks? And we speak to lots of women who've missed that follow-up appointment and, and have had a quick return to fertility. Um, so we're also thinking about those other big, bigger pictures of life. And you talked about detectability and I want to point out that um, we, we have been talking with some providers around um, the trimming of the strings is, uh, uh, connected to IUDs to the to the, to the um, hormonal IUD and um, you, you know the practitioners will sometimes say well oh, but it makes for a really tricky removal you know but, but because we've heard stories about the forcible removal of IUDs we think there are some circumstances in which that's warranted and so for example thinking about something like a proper IUD you know where a woman continues to menstruate regularly she continues to ovulate if we're um, trimming the strings of that IUD um, she's got sort of seven to ten years of contraception that can't really be easily detected by any outward or ordinary signs um, by a perpetrator. One tricky removal of an IUD every 10 years versus the other kinds of things that could happen for her obstetrically in a 10-year period. When we think about a harm minimisation point of view, she could have multiple pregnancies and several, you know, several births within, within that time of several termination. So when we stack that up against potentially one tricky um, removal. In my mind, um, it, it's harmonising for someone to, to, to trim the strings um, of those IUDs. So certainly depo, um, uh, IUDs and, and trimming the strings if we think that she's likely to be to be actively searched. Implanon rods, again, if, if we think that the kinds of exposure to violence um, and searching are, are not going to be too heavy-handed, then implanon certainly um, would, would, would be an option there as well. Um, oral contraceptives, I think, and particularly for women where daily routine is not too disrupted, and particularly for women who are not cohabiting, um, or who who don't who aren't subjected to high levels of surveillance by their partner, those things might be manageable. But when we go down the list to those things, those forms of contraception that need to be negotiated every time we have sex, and we really start to run into trouble for some women. So if we're thinking about fertility awareness methods, if we're thinking about withdrawal, if we're thinking about condom use and diaphragm use to some extent as well, these are things that need to be negotiated every time we have sex. And in a relationship where the woman has very little control over if, uh, if when, and how sex happens, um, negotiating that form of contraception can be really tricky. 
What we also know from the international research is that some women experience violence as a result of attempting to negotiate contraception, uh, such as condom use, and so they refrain from trying to negotiate out of fear for violence, and, and, and that helps us to understand why we see the overrepresentation of women experiencing violence in unplanned pregnancy, regardless of whether the violence is current or historical. We begin to understand that's part of the lingering effect of intimate partner violence that shows itself up in a woman's confidence and ability to negotiate sex in its own terms in future relationships. Okay. So it sounds to me like what's important for junior doctors is to recognise the social context um, behind a patient's story when thinking about actually counselling for contraceptive options. We often think about the common you know, contraindications and things like that, but yeah. it sounds like exploring a little bit about their social background could actually really help a woman to provide a form of contraception that's going to work for her, um, not just from a medical perspective, but in terms of her whole life and, and framework within that. That's a really beautiful way to summarise that. We're not just thinking about medical, we're thinking about psychosocial as well. So um, I imagine in your work you have a high suspicion already, um, but in a hospital situation it can be more challenging to, I guess, uncover if someone's in a situation such as you've described. Mm. What are some subtle signs? Well, certainly um, perpetrator behaviours can sometimes be a subtle clue, particularly if they seem reluctant for her to be, to, to be seen on her own, or if when they're with her, they, they speak a lot on her behalf. Um, if we're having uh, private conversations with women about contraception and we seem to hit a brick wall um, with these with these, this might suggest there are some challenges there, like we're saying, well, what plans have you got for future contraception? I don't really want to go there. It's a subtle clue for us that there may be some challenges for her. In, in, um, in feeling like she has the right and the capacity um, to make choices about what form of contraception um, she uses. Um, I think also um, even a brief um, obstetrics and gynaecological history can hold some really um, important clues for us um, in, in, in terms of the likelihood of that um, woman experiencing violence. So these are not um, these are not kind of definites. They're flags for the risk of violence rather than, than definitive in themselves. But certainly if we're noticing a few of those flags come up in conversation, we can use that as an entry point. I've noticed that you've answered these few questions in this way. This gets me concerned about your safety and well-being. Is it okay if I ask you a few questions about how things are for you in your relationship at the moment? So some of those flags, as you, as you mentioned in your opening address, would be rapid repeat pregnancies. So women who uh, experience violence are likely to have, you know, more, more likely than others to have five or more pregnancies. So even taking a, an odds history, you know, how many pregnancies have you had? How many um, abortions? How many miscarriages? How many live births? How many stillbirths? And how many ectopics? Which OBGYNs do all the time, mm. they? standard practice. And yeah. this is something that you can see on their pregnancy health record. Absolutely. Without even asking. Without even asking. Yeah. Yeah. And so, absolutely, rapid repeats, terminations, and also miscarriages. Um, so some of the data coming out of emergency um, departments uh, it tells us that um, pregnant um, women and um, pregnant people um, are um, presenting to emergency departments are up to seven times more likely to be presenting with injuries to the trunk than their non-pregnant counterparts. So we know that physical violence potentially plays a role in the overrepresentation of women experiencing violence 
putting miscarriages. Mm -hmm. So that miscarriage is also playing a bit of a role. So that basic obscuring history can speak volumes to us right off the bat there. Yeah. Are there Um, other flags in the obscuring history that you think... um, are important? Yeah, I certainly do. I think um, what, what we know from our work, um, particularly in abortion care settings, is that women experiencing violence and control, and, 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 and including those experiencing reproductive coercion, are more likely to present um, at a higher gestation at the first time of care. Okay. And they're more likely to have the gestation of their pregnancy recalculated. So if she's seeing you for the first time at 15 weeks, and she turns out to be 17 weeks, there's two flags there for us uh, in relation into that. So there's a, there's a bit going on there. Um, you know, some, some um, reasons why that might be happening is some, A, she may have been denied access to medical care up until this time. Um, her decision making in relation to the pregnancy may have been compromised by the cycle of violence. Um, she may be so busy surviving day to day that she's not uh, had a chance to check in with her own body to say, am I nauseous because I'm anxious about upcoming violence or am I nauseous because I might be pregnant at any time point. Okay. So that delayed presentation at the first time of contact yeah. and the recalculation of the gestation of pregnancy at that time of care are, ca- are potential flags for violence. Um, they're also contraceptive history, as you mentioned. They're also more likely to report the non-use of contraception or the intermittent use of contraception. So if we're asking what contraception you're on at the moment and saying, oh, I casually take the pill or I sometimes rely on the afterpill or um, we usually use condoms but not always um, or I'm not doing anything at the moment or um, you know, <laughs> any other stark, frozen kind of deer in the headlights response is again a clue for us um, about what might be going on for her. And the other one uh, is that um, she, she's more likely to present with a, with a sexually transmitted infection regardless of relationship status. So some of that risk-taking that we know her perpetrators engage in is the risk of unprotected sex with multiple partners, um, even if they're in an ongoing relationship. And so the ongoing effect then for the woman is a greater risk of sexually transmitted infections regardless of the status of relationship. So opportunistic STI screening, which we do as a routine part of pregnancy care, mm-hmm. or should be doing yeah. Yeah. pregnancy care can again be another flag for us that there's something else going on yeah. uh, for this woman and a flag for us about how we deal with and respond to partner notification etc around yeah. uh, around that and that might be another piece of some yeah. webinar is yeah. it <laughs> okay um, yeah webinars. so I think what I'm what I'm hearing here and summarizing I guess all of the things that you've talked about is really there there are a lot of things that we already information that we already have and part of our routine practice that is already there. So it's really just about putting that together and having reproductive coercion on the radar for junior doctors. Absolutely. So if that's happened um, and you do have your I guess your radar's on it and you have a bit of a sense with someone, what should you do? Yeah, well, you've already done all the right things in setting up the clinic environment and you're seeing the woman on their own. And um, there's a couple of ways forward. I know with some of the public hospitals, they're attempting to embed routine domestic violence screening at a number of points across the antenatal care spectrum. You know, asking sooner, asking often. Uh, We know that some women will not necessarily disclose the first time they are. So be prepared to ask more than once. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if it's embedded as routine screening, then we don't necessarily need to wrap the same kind of summary around it. But but as, as we were saying, some of that noticing around, gee, you know, I can see um, you, you've had a number of pregnancies really close together and, um, and several abortions in the last little while. And um, you're telling me that um, this is another unplanned pregnancy and that you weren't using contraception at the time. Um, and, and we know that these things may be uh, an indicator of violence or control in some of these lives. And I just want to check in with you about whether that's the case for you or not. Would it be okay if um, I asked you a few questions about your relationship? So we're not assuming that we have the right to know, but we're also indicating that we have some knowing about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so she she be, she begins to realise that here's somebody who understands what I might be up against. Here's somebody who knows something about this. And here's somebody who's gentle and kind enough to not assume that I'm required to disclose, but is, is, is inviting me to do so if I want to. Um, we're also thinking about how am I going to respond to that disclosure. So um, there is the stuff that you can do immediately as a practitioner and often people say, well, don't ask if you don't know what to do about it. But as we've discussed today, even educating women about the the, the, um, the sexual reproductive health impacts of domestic violence is uh, in and of itself an intervention, mm-hmm. raising their awareness of the impacts of their lived experience on their sexual and reproductive health. Whether they take action on that now or not is, is part of our intervention even if they're not disclosing because we've alerted them to the things in their own life that may be false for violence we're raising their awareness and understanding so that in and of itself is is an intervention using that contraceptive chart and the safety planning questions on the reverse side of the contraceptive chart that you've you've mentioned to do uh, an assessment of the medical and the psychosocial context of of contraception to ensure that any contraceptive that we provide doesn't put her at increased risk and does give her increased control over if and when she falls pregnant again is again an intervention into into, uh, increasing her safety and well-being. One of the things I didn't mention earlier um, the doctors can do um, as well as we know from the longitudinal research coming out of the United States that women who are able to access an abortion um, go on to experience lower levels of violence over time than those who've been denied access to an abortion. So if a woman is seeking uh, um, access to an abortion and she's disclosed violence, facilitating access to an abortion is part of safety planning as well because what that means is she has um, made it easier for herself to disconnect herself from that, that perpetrator relationship or she's shortened the depth and breadth of her relationship with that person if she's already got children to them. So facilitating uh, access to abortion is also part of uh, increasing her safety. And then referring on for other support, asking her, um, do, do you want some additional support around this? Given what I've been able to do for your sexual reproductive health issues, are you wanting to explore this further? She's not obligated to take that up, but but you, you can you can give her a referral to a local domestic violence service. And going on to the one eight hundred respect website and using their service locator can be an easy way of doing that. Having that um, on your desktop, so you can click on it and go straight to it and plug in where she is and look for. 
a local domestic violence service that can support them with counselling, uh, advocacy, court support, safety planning and safety upgrades for her. And if she, we would also be asking, is it safe for you to leave this appointment now? Is it safe for you to return home? Have you got someone you can call somewhere else you can go if not? And if not, then a referral to a crisis service um, uh, for, for assistance to be, to be moved to a place of safety. So we, we, we're starting with what we can do as doctors to enhance their reproductive autonomy. And we're moving on to referring and linking to specialist support around those issues that we're not qualified to work with. Mm-hmm. but we're qualified to refer to. Yeah. Well, thank you for so clearly outlining that. So I think we've really gone through the steps of before the woman or pregnant person comes into the clinic, the things you can do, what you can see on their pregnancy record or their health record, the questions you can ask them, and then what to do in terms of your management, both for contraceptive options, but also if they do flag contraceptive, uh, sorry, issues with reproductive coercion, ways to refer. So that 1-800-RESPECT is really good thing I guess to look up online and thanks for sharing that tool for us because that is something we could easily access within a clinic setting. setting. I guess the other thing too is remembering when you are working with OPs and health context most of your hospital and health services uh, will have a social work department as Mm. well and and they can play an important role in supporting some of that service linking and referrals so you know if you don't know what they can do for you as a a doctor get in touch with the the, the hospital social work department and, um, and find out the easiest way to collaborate over those issues of of violence and safety. Okay, well, thank you so much, Liz, for sharing all of this. So just to recap again on today, reproductive coercion is a form of intimate partner violence that is relatively common in Australia. As doctors, we can help spread awareness about intimate partner violence and reproductive coercion, firstly, by listening to this podcast. Secondly, as well, by knowing that it's important to think about the space that we see women, and that can be across multiple um, health environments, in a GP practice, in the emergency department setting, or in an obstetrics and gynaecology setting. And obviously, this goes to other areas outside of obstetrics and gynaecology. In our history, we can look for flags that might suggest signs of of violence or reproductive coercion. Things like looking at the G's and P's, previous contraceptive use, and then asking um, questions around the social history and and including asking those questions about relationships that can sometimes be important um, or difficult to ask a woman but can have really important implications. Then it's really important to know that there are referral options out there and using lines like 1-800-RESPECT or or knowing about different policies within your hospital in terms of social work referrals or other referrals are really important. Is there anything else that we've missed today, Liz? Wow, you did a really fabulous summary there, Allegra. You've obviously been listening very attentively and holding it all together. I I, I think um, um, not something we've missed, but something that I I will repeat is just make sure that you do see the woman on her own for part of each consultation. It's a very beginning step. Take charge of that clinic environment so that she does have privacy and the safety to step into making use of those opportunities to disclose. And remember, even if you do give her an opportunity and she doesn't disclose, you have communicated your compassionate care for her and you've also flagged with her um, that she may well have an opportunity to disclose in the future and she can get prepared for how she might make use of that opportunity. So not giving a disclosure, even if there are large amounts of flags, doesn't mean you've failed to make a difference. It means that the journey is going to be a long one and you might have taken an important step forward in that journey with that woman on that occasion.
Yeah, I think that's really useful advice and um, we often like to be problem solvers, but I guess what you're saying to us is that it's about opening um, opening the door really for yeah. conversation between a woman and their, and her healthcare service really. Absolutely. Um, and so would we be suggesting to women that they should call Children by Choice if they wanted to talk about um, uh, reproductive choices? Is that something that we should do? Yes, certainly. I mean, we, we are specialist areas on planned pregnancy, so we um, we do um, step into talking about contraceptive choices uh, within the context of that counselling. And, yeah. and there is lots of information on our website for people in relation to contraception in the context of violence which women can access. Um, I'm certainly happy to um, um, you know, spread the word to other healthcare settings where people are in the space where they are doing contraceptive choice and contraceptive counselling as well. So thanks Allegra so much for your interest in your work in this area and supporting us to get the word out there. Yeah, no, thank you Liz. It's been really helpful and I'm sure on behalf of the junior doctors and, and other health professionals listening, thank you so much for your time today and thank you Children by Choice for supporting PBOG so much. You're more than welcome. Thank, thank you. you.